Hello and welcome to The Bridge Podcast. This is the first of its kind and it dives into vendor management and the relationship between the customer, supplier and the buyer. I'm Nick Francis, your host for this event. I'm the Chief Technology and Marketing Officer for Brooklyn Vendor Assurance and I'm an advisor to the vendor ops community and it's my privileged job to be able to guide you through this complex world of vendor management and how best to, to manage customer, buyer, supplier equation, depending on whatever side of the table you, you sit. Every week we hope to have a host, myself this case, on this occasion, and some amazing guests that will come in and share their expertise and maybe teach a few things and uh, some different approaches of how to challenge or, or tackle the challenges within this area. Uh, this is our very first episode, so we're looking forward to see how it, it unravels and folds. It's going to be talking about contractual obligations, risk mitigation and risk controls, and ideally to gain transparency of driving best practice through the unmanaged vendor tail. So what that means is the suppliers, the organisations can't really manage that effectively because there's just too many of them. So they, they just manage the first few or the biggest few. So it's talking about how we can actually get a, a readout on the tail itself. So for today's episode, or the very first one, as I said, my guests are Jesse Lee and Dr. Tony Fryer. Both are colleagues of mine from Brooklyn Vendor Assurance and both on the front line working with clients and customers on a day-to-day -day basis, helping them with vendor management. So gents, we've known each other for what is a, a while now, and finally it's great to get you on a on our very first podcast and to share your experiences with the audience. I know you've got a lot of experience in the area over the last few years having worked side by side. But first, probably a, a few introductions wouldn't go amiss. As I've got the mic, as it were, I'll go first. So as I said, Chief Technology and Marketing Officer. I'm an engineer by trade from the 90s. I was someone that really liked process re-engineering, big fan of Lean and Six Sigma principles and what they stand for. I really like getting to grips with uh, business processes, some of the bad ones out there, some that lack definition or are poorly defined or overly defined in some cases. And I've held a number of roles in technology, information security and risk management, which are always focused on vendors and suppliers to some degree. So, guys, can you give us a bit about your introduction, your background, what you're working on right now? So start with you, Jesse. Okay. Hi. Uh, thank you, Nick. I'm Jesse. I'm the CEO of Brooklyn. My background comes from uh, enterprise software and bringing forward a company that looked to expose in a business intelligence kind of way, what is that money doing for the C-suite, especially that tech money for that CIO, that CFO of IT perhaps. And upon exposing it, inevitably, the, the instantaneous next question was, well, how can I get better value for that money for, for what I'm trying to do for the business here? Um, accelerate the roadmap, etc. And, you know, the software wasn't built to do that. It was built to uh, expose, but not uh, actually drive better value in the end. And do you know the field of opportunity in those late 2000s, 2010s, early 2010s was most of the time that supply chain. That's where so much money was spent. That's where so much uh, value was really not realized over time due to a repeating pattern of gaps in governance, coverage, activities, responsibilities, etc. And so we got a, a really good lens on this. And after seeing these patterns over and over and over, Myself and some others really couldn't take this anymore and wanted to bring forward something purpose-built to really uh, you know, digitize some of these best practices 
and root out this economic waste that is was pretty much you know uh, rife up and down the supply chain. And the patterns are different with the very biggest suppliers and the ones that we deal with and do make time to uh, to talk with, perhaps sometimes on a frequent basis, and different patterns as you get into the smaller, lower tier suppliers. So, uh, you know, we found that the base reasons why these this economic waste kind of uh, manifests is due to uh, some gaps in managing a, a host of things, contracts, um, risk on the front line of whoever's facing these suppliers, how we manage the performance of them, how we incentivize and reward innovation, a whole bunch of things. And what was true then has been ever more true every year because there's more and more you know, commoditization, let's say, of services you need to power your business. That's a giant wave that's kind of washed through. Um, out here in the UK, there's Brexit or EU generally. Brexit brought this into sharper focus. Then COVID and, and, and uh, old ways toppled and the workforce uh, regularity were sometimes decimated. So, so the fragility and the need for resilience has just come into the fore. The odd ship getting stuck in the Suez Canal. It's like, you know, with more and more transparency and, and realization that supply chains are vital for powering every business and yet rife with risk and fragility, that just, you know, and to say nothing of the demand for sustainability controls and improvements up and down the supply chain so that your business is on a sustainability path. Well, you know, it's the time for, for some comprehensive purpose-built solution just built to tackle and close down on those gaps that we saw for years and years and years and years. So that's in large part what inspired this and what we're doing. You said, what am I working on? That was a little bit about the tech, but we're trying to, we are building the, the premier community of practice, community of practitioners that, and giving of their best practice and how to handle this and achieve commercial value, maximum value for money over time. And we wanna put that in the technology and, and have each one of these things feed the other. So building that community and really learning from the experts that are out in front, passionate about this, doing something about this that matters. That's what takes up a lot of uh, my focus these days. Thank you, Jesse. Tony, from your perspective, having come from the same org, Jesse probably stole 90% of your thunder there. So you're probably wondering what to talk about when you introduce yourself. But um, over to you, same sure. question Thank for you. you and something. What's on so, your agenda? Hi, my name's Tony. And, uh, thanks, Nick. So I'm the uh, solution consultant for Brooklyn Vendor Insurance, and like Nick, again, a background in engineering by profession. And I've spent over my career speaking to hundreds of procurement, supplier, contract, and many other different types of teams, really understanding what are those key challenges that they're facing and really encouraging and promoting and kind of empowering best practices across all of their different functional teams uh, in the wider organization when it comes to, to procurement. And, and what I've been really focusing on recently is around a couple of things. One is all of the different types of activity that are required as part of best practice to manage uh, suppliers that goes beyond just what it says in the contract. And second, actually being able to get a contract and decompose that into the relevant parts and really spread the message of the contract right across those different functional teams so that ultimately it's a mutual relationship where they both achieve that value. Great, thank you. 
We wanted in this uh, podcast the listeners to sort of have some relevance in terms of hot news. So we had a hot news section. The concept of this in the next few minutes is we're going to go through what's going on in the, right, in the world right now and try and bring it back to supplier management and some of the challenges around it. So even though I think businesses over the last... Was it 25 years globalisation, 30 years globalisation has been a topic. We've seen them talk about establishing those widespread supply chains. I think the series of events that's happened over the last five plus years um, has really challenged that somewhat. So I think memory serves me right. 2016, Brexit was announced and from that was a slew of conversations about trade deals and free market access, which was challenging supply lines and suppliers and buyers equally. And, and that, that didn't appear solved by any measure until the pandemic came along in sort of March 2020, which then had a different take on supply chains and supplier demand, which was the resources con, con, conducting the work from either being building the product to actually getting it to the customer was then challenged in terms of the number of people who were available to do it because of the pandemic. And and I don't think we've even emerged from the pandemic slightly. We're getting better. And then we have now this sort of this unrest in Europe and, and Ukraine and that, that further is challenging supply lines for, for very different reasons. But I think what you can see over the last five years with those topics, or those series of events, should I say, that vendor management is like hard, right? It's tough. It's, it's post-contract management of your suppliers is is difficult, whether you're the customer, buyer, supplier, uh, and perhaps it's always been difficult maybe since 2008, since the financial bump that we had had caused a lot more regulation, a lot more focus in this space to, to be borne out. So hot news, like I said, conversation topic one, rising energy costs. So how does this impact um, contract obligations? Should organisations be flexible to pricing changes? Obviously, we've got that rising cost coming through. That is going to have to be borne somewhere. Gents, wanted to get your thoughts on this. So Jesse, you first. Sure. Um, this rising energy cost puts pressure on you know, margin. Ultimately, if uh, well, it's different kinds of pressure, but you have to understand the impact of just commodity inflation, right? The energy costs that have to do with constructing and transporting elements that form up, you know, the, the, whatever is let's say in, in your supply chain has to come together to, and then bringing that that to market ultimately. That's something that you're going to probably think of as just, it, it may not always go up, up and down, but inflationary pressure. You, you have to understand how that's ultimately what cost you're going to put forward. And then there's interesting things now, like it's not just the cost of that resource has increased, therefore costs more to build and ship around, move around the commodity. Well, in conflict zones, you 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 have all kinds of new fuel costs because you have to use more, right? You have to, the airspace is closed over this way. So if if you are in Europe and you're still dependent on some Russian crude or gas, that's going to get to you potentially in a different way. Uh, even if it's the same stuff, there might be plenty more transportation costs just because it has to go so much further to get around all this, all this risk and terrible conflict and everything. So, uh, the first step that we that we our community would say is should you should do is kind of model and understand that, and this is a larger topic, but pursuant to a framework of of how you manage risk generally. But then you're going to want to build in some alternatives, right? So if your supply chain is so cost efficient that the very cheapest widgets come from very far away, part of understanding and and being not so dependent on 
shipping, which means you could be really rocked when energy costs go up. Well, that means considering onshoring or maybe what we might call friend shoring so, so that everything required to assemble what it is that you sell and need goods you need to move around, all that, all that distance around the planet is much reduced. And maybe some unit rates are higher, but there's less energy, at least in terms of the shipping and stuff that you might need to use, and you'd be less dependent on foreign energy generally or, or unfriend, unfriendly shores <laughs> potentially. That, that might introduce at least some stability and at least a great story of staying out of conflict zones, et cetera. At some point, you have to invest into how you manage this risk. You can't be excellent at managing risk and, and carving every single penny and pence out of the unit rate of producing things, right? It requires some investment. And some of that, to get around this energy trouble, might involve you know, just really carefully understanding those things and building in that sort of flexibility and levers you can pull in their supply chain. So that's some great sort of proactive advice for, for, for companies to go out or people that look after suppliers to go out and try and protect themselves against these sort of unknowns. I think you run a growing business, right? So I'm, I'm part of that. So I, I know intimately what you and I do on a day-to-day basis. At a more basic level, if you had suppliers approaching you now with cost increases due to rising cost of energy, et cetera, what would you think your response would be? Would you, how would you deal with that? Because that's likely yeah. to be happening now to some, some companies. The first thing, I was going to say the first, thing, the first aspect I think about um, in terms of that, well, it's a macro rise for everyone. And I think what it really flushes out is that you need to have a real partnership with your suppliers and, and between the supplier and buyer because you have to endeavour to, to get the best value and lower risk together and that therefore you need that collaboration you need that openness to be able to do that and if you look at the flip side well what's the alternative the alternative is then you're going into a uh, potentially a sourcing activity uh, which is costly uh, takes a long time when a lot of the solution could be the right there in front of you with your existing supplier base yeah the risk is that sourcing activity you might end up in exactly the same place again because like you said it's rising for everyone so you might not get that efficiency absolutely so that out the frying pan into the fire that value saving on the surface by switching supplier let's say may not actually be the total (laughs) that total cost ownership of Going with a, with a, or keeping with an existing supplier, which may look more expensive on the surface. So it sounds like you've got to, what you're saying there is look at really before you leap, look at the cost of change, right? Because the cost of change, exactly. you helping your supplier out with some bigger bills and potentially increasing your costs for a little while might be better off than you the cost of change and you going through that entire exercise, right? Which is could yeah, be painful. Exactly. There's one concept that I've come across in the field, which is really about being a trusted buyer as well so it's not all it's not only a one directional way there's a lot of big organizations that i've spoken to that where they want to look like a respectable buyer not to mess suppliers around my air quotes here it's terrible sort of the trusted element do you want to dig into that in terms of what the trusted partner trusted supplier trusted buyer what, what do you want to give some context around what that means first of all it's really about communication in the first place so there's got to be open channels of communication on a regular cadence and not only, uh, not at a pinch point, right? So that's got to be across the different roles and functions that are interacting interface between the buyer mm. and the supplier. 
And, and I think that really helps facilitate what that transparency, which then gives you that trust because without that transparency, without maybe holding things back in, in a relationship, you're never really going to get that trust. And then how can you use that going forward to solve problems together? And you, you kind of indicated that there was less, like the trusted buyer, there was, there, was, there was more emphasis on being a trusted buyer as opposed to, do you see that sometimes skipped over? It's very much the supplier needs to be trusted. It's all supplier-centric. Is that kind of what you was getting uh, at? Yeah, or? I think that's the, uh, that's tends to be where, on the surface, where people look at this dynamic of a relationship, mm. right? It's always the supplier needs to be the, the trusted part of that partnership yeah. and, and less emphasis is really thought about well, what does it take to be a good buyer? Yeah, how do I make this supplier successful kind of thing? Yeah, exactly. we, we, we see that a lot right? in terms of we ask them to do a lot of things, but what's my, what's my skin in the game? And that's sometimes overlooked. That's the one thing. So I want to, I think Tony's spot on. Part of the investment is not just investing in frameworks and policies and stuff, but it is investing in that relationship. If you have invested in the relationship with your supplier, your supplier with your, with your buyer, then that's something to draw upon when times get a little tough. So the challenge is, of course, the enterprise has devoted, limited, and resourcing into the building and main, establishing and maintaining those relationships. That's manual work, right? I think the pattern we see in the market is until that supplier costs us a, a certain eye-watering amount, we will not break off the time of a professional to engage with them and build a relationship. We will not have time, and therefore it's essentially transactional, <laughs> except you know, by and large, painting with a broad brush right here. So that's a shame. And we've seen the the returns that can be reaped if you find ways, modern ways, to engage those suppliers at much bigger scale and, and rely on some you know modern methods and tools to do that sort of thing so that there is a history, a fact-based conversation to have, a relationship on to some degree that makes sense for the for the tier of vendor that they are um, to your organization. A lot of people get when you talk about relationship and that softer side of collaboration. I think I see a lot of people sometimes say, like sort of like, intake of breath, and because it sounds like they apply relationship and collaboration to like they would in their personal life with their friends and family, which is a lot of effort, right? And they're like, well, I've got thousands of suppliers. I think more for me. I don't know if you how you feel about this, but it's more about when you a good relationship is not necessarily the amount of time it's about putting the right boundaries and trust in place of from the start that says we are going to manage or collaborate in this amount right and this frequency and this is what you can expect from me and this is what i expect from you and much like if you apply it to your personal life you you do that with with everyone right with family you do it more people you see infrequently you do it less but at least there's that understood structure I think a lot of I find with that vendor tale is I talk to customers which it's either it's nothing or it's everything kind of thing. It's either I manage you or I don't, right? And it just seems that the opportunity is the ones that you don't, you can just give them a little bit more structure and information as to, yeah, you're not one of our biggest suppliers, but we will manage you in this context and this way and I'm still here to have a relationship with. Do you agree with that or disagree or oh, I think you? the 
the framework concept I completely agree with. That, that has to be in place. And the reason why I think that has to be in place, looping back to your soft relationship kind of mm. comment, is to me that you're talking a little bit there about almost like those personal relationships mm. which are dependent on people. As we all know, people move on from organisations. Is that buyer-supplier relationship yeah, partnership still there? So you can't really, as an organisation, rely on that completely. Yeah. There's a risk there. So you need that framework in place to have that consistency and that standardization that really surpasses just the, you know, the, are we friends as a buyer supplier yeah. on a personal level? So having that in place allows other people to walk in or just the organization in general, keep that communication flowing, that relationship going under what is kind of agreed terms. Now, how hard or soft those agreed terms are is a, you know, a different matter for the contract. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That you're kind of sort of straying into policy, right? And how you set up that relationship and I suppose it does lead into risk a bit somewhat, right? In terms of what is this person or this company doing for us? How risky is that? How much rigour do I need to wrap around that, right? I think it, it all has a bearing. Completely. And so you, you then delve into the uh, the boundaries of where do us as a business, as a buyer, in terms of our policies, stray into what's written on a contract. I was talking to a customer in the field only last week where they were saying in part of their business in certain regions and sectors that they don't have everything in the contract. And in fact, the contract is only a few sides long for what could be or traditionally seen as complex IT services. And what they rely on is a kind of mutual framework predominantly agreed in principle to ultimately work on problems together and solve those. You know, if things out, if things are off track, then it can be steered on track, and people already appreciate and acknowledge that things may go off track, which allow their, the allows you there the to nature fix of it. IT, right? Yeah, IT doesn't exist if everything worked all the time. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I think the other key aspect with the partnership angle is where does that boundary lie between what is my business and what is the supplier? And now we all know that outsourcing as a macro trend is extremely high at the moment so the suppliers are in effect part of your business they're more of <laughs> they're a part right? of the org yeah you devolved your four walls construct of your business and the suppliers are now in and it's, a, it's less obvious where your business ends and your supplier stops right yeah we have a customer that that measures its supplier on to what degree do we have evidence that they look at our customers as their customers, not us who pays them, our customers. And that opens up some creativity in terms of here's how we can best serve your business as a supplier. There's a financial services company and a supplier provides something that that financial services company puts in the hands of their customers. Yeah. So they have somewhat of a user experience, a physical user experience as they as they use this thing. Yeah. So that supplier, like all of them, is measured on, do I think that supplier operates thinking of the customer experience to us, right? So there are some stories of innovation. This is one thing, and especially through the vendor tale, where it's one reason it's so transactional and, and less than it could be and values lost over time. How is that supplier that nobody talks to on any regular basis going to be incented and rewarded who's going to remember that they 
took the time to think up something extra and did something extra to the delight of the customer's customer. <laughs> well, in this organization, that's captured. Mm. That is scored and persists digitally forever. So we talk about trophies in the case. The supplier innovated, thought up something clever that would ultimately delight the customer of the customer and got credit and the credit will persist. What we want to see is that is digital ways for that to happen far down into that vendor tail. And then talking as a small hypothetical supplier, if I but knew the roadmap of my customer, if I've had a sense of their end customer and I'm doing something that's important, and if I knew that I bring forward new ideas and something new to consume and for them to use for the delight of their customer, and if they're going to remember that and credit for me and I'll get a trophy in the case, well, great. Then I bet they're going to partner with me when I come along later and say, man, those fuel costs just really made my price go up. Will you roll with it? Will you yeah. ride this out with me, right? Yeah. So there's a lot of stories like that, but you're going to need you're going to need you're going to need some digital advantages or you're just not going to if you don't talk today doing it manually, how where's the incentive? Is it even going to happen? So that's one of those challenges that we think is if you have a value mindset and you really want to get across your as much your whole supply chain or as much of it as you possibly can, there's controlling risks, there's building in flexibilities, levers you can pull, like we talked about, and there's also incentivizing and tracking rewarding innovation. And then that contract becomes more like Tony is talking about, like a birth certificate of a relationship <laughs> that we're going to have for a good long while, hopefully. And it's not just a bunch of controls of a bunch of people looking to gain some transactional advantage and hold on to that in their tight little fists forever, right? Mm -hmm. We want it, it should, it should be a birth certificate where in the end, the best, it doesn't really matter what, what it is because there's a great relationship and value exchange both ways. Yep. So bring us back, so we've gone off on a tangent, which, are, which is always good, right? I think the threads were there if we cared to unpick it and track back. But if we bring us back to kind of second conversation topic we had here, um, Deloitte wrote a really good paper recently, and for those who have cared to have read it, it was around the sort of disruption of upstream suppliers in Russia and Ukraine and how that may further weaken sort of already global suppliers, right, and some of the crisis that they're in. And one thing that came out for me, I didn't even realise until uh, to reading this was, the amount of food agriculture and uh, like 25% of the world's wheat trade comes from there and 60% of global sunflower oil, 30% of barley exports, all from that sort of Russian-Ukraine region. So that's a lot of stuff the layman didn't know, know come from there, right? We was always talking about the the gas and the stuff and that impact. But there, there's, it's wider than that, a lot wider. And um, Deloitte goes on to have sort of 12 suggestions around how you can deal with it. I'll go through the, the ones that I thought were the more important ones and the more relevant, and then I'll ask you guys to comment on them. The first one was like ensuring risk management frameworks and systems are in place, was a, I thought a good one. Using technology to understand risks in tier two and beyond. There's two ways of looking at, which is tier two in the, someone segmented their suppliers in really critical and important down to, the vendor tail, the transactional ones, tier two, or there's the tier two, which is the second supplier in the supply chain behind your supplier, right? So there's two ways of looking at that. Understanding and activating alternate sources of supply, considering onshoring and friendshoring, as it were, which was, which was, Jesse, you touched on earlier, which I thought was, it's always that in-out, 
outsourcing, source, same thing, globalise, localise, globalise, localise. There's always a balance. There's always a, a swing of to doing it. And also the further one, was, which is coming much more relevant, you see on the news now as well, which is increased focus on cyber security and risk monitoring, right, within like your, your own company as, as well as your key suppliers. Right? So out of the 12, I thought they were the, the five that sort of jumped out on me. Yeah, so I think there's one general lesson there around visibility clearly, and a need to get that visibility and insight right the way through the supply chain, and predominantly that starts by knowing your own supply. There's another general one that we've kind of seen a lot recently, and it goes beyond the kind of conflict around cybersecurity. That's becoming uh, an increasingly important risk domain, an aspect, arguably, the, one of the most, and, and that, I think, stems from a lot of those services, a lot of IT services cannot be done in-house. They have to be outsourced and they have to be to a lot, and lots of not only big IT outsourcers, which we know, but lots of, coming back to the kind of innovative, smaller IT services and solutions, which may carry, carry more risk as well. So having a focus on the framework around cybersecurity risk is top of the agenda for everyone now. And those threat vectors can come from anywhere, right? It's, it's yeah. global. It doesn't need a, a regional or local aspect to it. I think it was the only one on there that we were talking about this morning, actually. So there's the cyber element is targeting suppliers and supply chains can typically, it has to be targeted towards you. And what I mean by that is this lateral sprawl kind of thing that tech is tech, Right and cyber like malware etc doesn't doesn't differentiate between it could be part of that geopolitical movement but it's everything's connected to the internet so you don't necessarily have to be targeted by it to then be impacted by it back to the point of that lateral sprawl right so yeah there's definitely a need to to shore yourself up and your suppliers to make sure you can weather anything that might not be focused at you but you're an unintended consequence of that that focus right and. Uh, that's evolving day to day, week to week. It's an industry all in its own right that Absolutely. I think you, you need to pay attention to. So this is this is great. This is a, a recent one called the supply chain implications of the Russia Ukraine conflict. And as you say, we we think of the energy, the crude oil, and the gas coming out of the region, and uh, you know some of these important commodities that you had mentioned. One thing I didn't really appreciate was uh, you know, one of those commodities being neon. What you need to use lasers to make chips. <laughs> and so we're still kind of in a chip shortage. There was a, a has been one uh, going on with great impact, to, not in this article, but but elsewhere mentioned that uh, because of the really a pandemic and a huge demand for devices while people are locked down, that's impacting car manufacturers that can't build enough cars can't, that you want to. And GM shutting factories down, in fact, because you just can't produce enough. You can't get enough chips in your hands. Even in spite of all these devices getting sold, Apple shipping 10 million fewer devices in 2021 than the year prior. And who knows what will happen this year. Really? And lo and behold, there's this neon coming out of Odessa and Ukraine and Russia is also a major supplier. But when, when Crimea was annexed, a 600% spike in the cost of that stuff. I didn't see that Apple quote. Uh, uh, yeah, this was bef so before any Ukraine anything. But I was going to say, why, do they know why that? What, just that saturated market or what? The availability of this resource was just more limited and in demand everywhere. Okay. So that they couldn't, I think I'm filling in a gap here, but just 
run enough manufacturing process, i.e. enough lasers etching <laughs> etching uh, chips, because yep, yep. you need to use up neon to do that. Yep. And so it's not only neon, I suppose, but that was a big constraint. Yeah. And here's like one place in the world that supplies some 70% of it that exists. Epitome of globalization. Yeah. Right? We could be back here in a month talking about like a, a whole big, a real shortage now. It's a, it's sort of knocks into resilience, right? And, and exactly. the need to yeah. be, mm-hmm. do you like multi, multi-vendor, multi-supplier, multi-location? How and much do you do to your, you know, yeah. the, the, the stockpiling? Stockpiling, just-in-time inventory is all the rage when everything's super stable, but yeah. you know. It's not so good when you can't. You can't. <laughs> yeah, fill your you change your mind quickly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, to your question about these recommendations, which Deloitte made, and you and you summarize five. I I think there's one, there's two, and then there's the rest. Number one, and, and sometimes when you when you talk about this stuff, it feels like we're talking about the world's biggest companies with the most complicated supply chains. But for for essentially any business. You got to have a framework. You are planning to fail. You may as well plan to get ransomware right now if you don't have a framework for managing your risk. And a framework is going to have this thing called appetite, right? Something could go wrong and manifest into an issue. How likely is it? How expensive is it? One in in a very basic framework draws a line through that. And if it's above and to the right, we can't live with it. We have to do something to mitigate this. You could be a modest, small business who doesn't have all these levers to pull and friendly shores versus ons and offshores. But if you're in business, you pretty much want a framework, be it ever so humble, to capture and manage and where merited mitigate this stuff. Now you're in better control. Otherwise, today's day and age, Tony was talking about cybersecurity, you're just making a plan to have a big, expensive, surprising, problematic issue or many. And then the set, so that was number one. Number two of the list is using technology to understand, get some transparency beyond that first tier. Uh, I would say yes. And it seems like the conversation often stops at transparency. Now I know. Well, there's knowing and then there's doing. And the very same people that want to know in our world, are always telling us I don't have any more time to do. And if I go do this, I now can't do that, which I was doing. That was super important. So you need advantages. You need your technology, if it's well um, you know, selected, built for you, is going to assist you in the doing, right? The knowing and the doing. Otherwise, it's just information and painful triaging that you'll have to do if you even use this information, right? So some digital advantages to doing more beyond these top few vendors where you may you may or may not have all these levers to pull. You're going to need some assistance doing and making smart, even machine-generated uh, or assisted decisions and then executing, again, far down that vendor tail since that's what we're kind of talking about today. I think those are the top things. Ukraine war, pandemic, whatever. Even without that stuff, it's that's still what's more and more we hear people demanding. And I suppose let me say one last thing to make this point, bring it home. Now we're, there's this this war that focuses the attention and causes all this disruption. We have a, a customer, a different customer that is illustrative of something. And in th- in this one case, uh, again I have to anonymize here. They're a household name that provides certain retail products to the population. They have suppliers aplenty in the tens of thousands. And they made a decision 
to go from one shore that where it looked like we had a big problem building and and source from other things sort of pre pre-built and pre-ready contracts built I mean and draw down on those from other shores and the example I'm being a little general because I have to but the motivating factor was omicron if you can believe like now it seems quaint a little bit <laughs> now that we see what's happening in in the Ukraine and and the atrocities and everything and the impact to supply chain energy and all the rest of it out there. Now we know that Omicron is not so deadly as the Delta variant that came before, but at the time on one particular continent, a group of nations, it was spiking there. So this supplier, this, this customer, which had a lot of suppliers in that cluster of countries, made a sweeping decision, you know, ramp those down to off because here comes Omicron starting there and we are going to source from these other um, shores. And so it, I guess the point is that transparency and that ability and that capability to make a decision and a change was very important to them at the time. Now there's more important things cooking, but these people in this business are going to always demand more transparency and more technology advantages to make sweeping changes like that based on market conditions. Sometimes they're kind of mild, like a flu-like symptom against which everyone's vaccinated now. Sometimes they're pretty major, like a, a flaming war going on. But if they don't have the latter, they're still gonna want all that capability. And the other thing will be the big giant problem of the day, because there's always gonna be a big problem with the day to your point earlier. I think to unpack that, so, so I think that's a, that's a point well made and what I take away from that and have done over the last few years in this industry is that everyone's looking for a, or there's a compelling event, right? Yeah. But the whole thing is the fact of you need to be ready for a compelling event of all different shapes and sizes. You need to know enough about your suppliers and your vendors and your customers if you're on the other side of the table to at least know where you would go to have a conversation about X happening. And that X can be a pandemic, that X could be Brexit, that could be a conflict in, in Europe, right? And the point is, is, is you can't be too reliant on knowing what X is. You just need to have back to the framework, well said, right. back yeah. to the, the way you manage, back to the collaboration and the relationship, that you have enough of an established machine in place that's augmented by tools that means you can get across all of your suppliers in that way from the biggest to the smallest in whatever way that, that, that you can, be that digital or be that face-to-face. -face. That's what I kind of take away from it and to kind of back out of this part of the conversation because risk of us becoming like a four-hour Joe Rogan podcast, um, <laughs> we probably should move on to the main topic, which is literally about some of the basics. And Tony, you and I speak a number of times about how, this is my words, not yours, so that's not what Tony says, but it's, it's around the subject of tech companies and they do we're a tech company um, will push the need for ever increasing tooling ai this ml that and that's in the box but a lot of the time when you get to talk to customers it's about those topics but when you get more nearer the relationship it goes back to the basics it goes back to doing the basics well to be able to do the next bit that makes the most out of ai ml mm -hmm. all those bits of tools because you haven't got the foundations to build that upon all the AI in the world is not going to help you, right? And, and, and that's what we find. So main topic for today was around contract obligations, risk mitigation and risk controls, which are sometimes dry subjects at the best of time, right? To give it a bit of personality. But what does that all, all mean to you? Let's start, I suppose, with contractual obligations, yeah, right? Absolutely. So 100% agree 
or that fundamentally everyone's on this maturity journey and it's like a ladder right you can have all the runs of the ladder at the top but if you haven't got those first couple of runs you're not going to get further up and mature so where that sticks in in terms of contract management and this is how it's often referred to right especially in the field and that can mean a lot of different things to to a lot of different people and i think on one end of the spectrum people view contract management is simply i've got a contract or I've got a little bit of data about my contract in terms of maybe a start date, hopefully an end date, something around some indication of value, <laughs> which may be or maybe not be accurate. And then hopefully it'll be, you know, the document will be there in a file repository somewhere. So when the field and in the market says contract management, they're really talking about just managing at that highest level. And that's fine, and that's a great place to start, and and the place you should start when you're doing and when you're managing your suppliers. However, where we see the real value being driven is by what's actually in the contract. What are the set of instructions, commitments, obligations that are going to make this a successful relationship and partnership? And I think, as we all know, contracts, especially complex ones, can be difficult to disanimate and, and understand. But I kind of tr- take a, a little bit of a maybe almost trivial approach in terms of ultimately what has to happen, who's responsible, not, not just beyond, you know, beyond just the organisation, you know, the buyer or the supplier. It's like which functional teams are actually involved and the people involved in this. And, and, and ultimately, when do they have to do it? And I think if you take that lens to the problem and start off in a kind of incremental fashion, meaning what's the most important things within the, within the contract that you're looking to get, you can quickly run up those runs of the ladder. I find it some the, the, the research companies and the tech companies and somewhat of the, the traditional procurement, life cycle procurement wheel, right? Like the S2C, source to contract, you kind of almost, I don't think intentionally does, but it almost infer, infers that once you read a lot of them, that once you've authored a contract and then maybe you pay the supplier well, or on time, that's it done. Mm-hmm. Like that's it. It's, it's all about that pre-post-contract sort of due diligence, or just that level of, as you say, digitizing that contract, and then you're out. Right? There's there's nothing else to to do. But that's in reality, that's so far from the truth. Especially when you you mention complex deals, right? Some of these deals are hundreds of millions or a billion in size and are five years in in length, right? That I know I worked on one that had fifteen hundred obligations, right? needed to get done from both sides and it wasn't tracked anywhere so jesse maybe you want to pick up on that a bit and talk a bit more around that need and that need for the rigor or the the, the post-contract yeah, problem for sure completely agree we see this a lot i mean we launched into obligations sometimes we see just the end date right the end date and some helpful reminder so it doesn't just blow past me would be my first step in my journey towards um managing contracts and like tony said fine that is appropriate i suppose what we see in the market is sometimes an embedded belief that to get into the meaning of the thing the centerpiece of this whole relationship is going to take a mountainous amount of work and maybe historically it kind of has and you know haul in lawyers to flip pages and distill and understand and boil out your 1500 obligations what's called for is a way to much more quickly discover those 
And then upon discovering them, don't just put them on the digital shelf then. Again, once discovered, uh, as has historically been done with the document itself, but fold those into a cadence of management, of visitation, of further distillation to pull out things like the service levels that are committed to, if it's a, if it's one of those kind of service contracts, and then manage those uh, all in automated fashion, right? That's what we r- really care about. And, th- and this gets down from where I started out in this conversation about why is value for money missed so often? It's missed because that which we hoped for and hammered out to the tune of 1,500 obligations got away from us when one or two people left the org and some new drama happened. Had this stuff been digitized, had the facts been on the platform as the people moved in and out, had the obligation met yes or no, risk associated just to that one, captured, actions specific just to that other one, captured, ongoing measurement of you know, is, is this thing being delivered? Again, let's take a service level agreement example. Is that automated and on rails? That act alone results in a 26% increase in quality of service, which also includes some hard dollar savings over time. So we think this is about more than, it's far beyond housekeeping. It's getting into value management and value generation such that that which was the beginning envisioned can actually happen. And as all that we haven't talked about this, but as all the changes come in and those obligations are modified, that itself is captured and folded into a clean list of obligations on us, each other, today. Evergreen, always framing the agreement, even if it doesn't look like that contract we hammered out five years ago you know, different people in our companies five years ago. That's, that's the, that is the promise, right? That's real contract management. That's that's interesting because you almost get that notion of a contract becomes something like written in stone when actually it's not really, it's written in plasticine, right? And it will change, <laughs> right? They're going to mold it and mold it. And you can't, you can't to your point earlier, Tony, have a contract vehicle that's so inflexible that all the value goes out of it and the innovation, the creativity of the two companies working together, right? And that's where you get your best best opportunity is that relationship part, So, which isn't born out of the contract. So the contract piece is is key. It, I think what, you, what we uncovered or unpacked there was the fact that there is this stage, depending on an organisation and approach, is that the, the birth of the contract's the end of my job. Actually, I just need to digitise the contract, then it's the end. Uh, I need to extract the obligations into a spreadsheet that then just sits on a digital shelf again somewhere else. Actually, it's beyond that to put in those things to work to make sure that it maps back to the benefits realisation that you probably put together to justify spending the money in the first place, which should in theory be in the contract, but isn't always. Mm -hmm. So you can deliver a contract, but still not be recognising the business benefits that you thought of originally, right? So there's there's contracts, right? And there's so much effort. I'm not getting what I wanted. There's so much effort spent up front yeah in that business case in that pre-contract award phase and yeah. are you really realizing the value from that that's it you've got to loop it back and it's because it's really a closed loop to be able to articulate and justify the value that you've uh, that you set out or expected to ultimately get and the other thing is that then starts becoming a feedback loop as well right in terms of did we get the value we got more we got less what did we what were the the assumptions that we made when we were doing the sourcing activity? So it all feeds back into 
not only managing post-contract better, but those insights feed back into the pre-contract world and makes them more impactful and more efficient. And part of that, I suppose, that benefit analysis and the benefits you want and the value you want out of it, this is where we bring in the risk angle, is what risk are you willing to accept to recognise those benefits or recognise that value? And I know the top we mentioned, that some of the topic today was around risk mitigation. But I think we need to take it a bit earlier back than that. I'll stay with you, Tony, around because I know it's, just, it's a topic you love. You talk to a lot of people about Even today you've been talking to someone about it, which is risk for me is all well and good. A lot of people talk in risk, but there's that initial piece of where does the risks come from? Mm-hmm. What's the curation? Do you want to, do you want to yeah. talk a bit about that? Because I think we need to establish that point before you can mitigate anything. Yeah, I think there's a a paradigm or a frame of mind which thinks of risk as almost a tick box exercise, right? Where we need to, we know we need to carry out some risk management or risk assessment or due diligence, whatever kind of wording you want to use there. And as long as I carry out some light touch assessment of some kind, ask the right questions, or ask some questions, then that's my job kind of done. We've, we've done our risk management, we've done our piece. And really that's just the beginning of the journey. Ultimately- Point in time check, right? Just... Exactly, it's a snapshot that becomes stale, becomes out of date, misaligned to the, the buying organization. And ultimately in itself becomes risky. So that really leads you to the question of, well, what should I be doing? What, what's the output of, doing that type of exercise and ultimately your output you should be thinking about is well I want to identify uh, risks and manage that stock of risks appropriately mm-hmm. and that goes beyond just having some information about those risks which is all good and well and provides a bit of knowledge and insight but it's what are the actions that are going to stem off those risks what's the activity that it's going to allow me to move that risk from what was a high risk, let's say, into something that's more palatable and low risk for the business. So where do you think, I think this is what trips a lot of people up, which is why amount of consulting that I've done, you go and look at really some complex deals and some complex engagements, and the risk log is really light or really transactional. <clears throat> Where do you think the first load of risks come from? What, what do you think that, at what point should that risk stock be created and what do, the, what do you use to create it? What, where does it come from? Well, I think in general, most of the market view it as a, it's almost a, in that pre-contract award phase, that first scan assessment against those suppliers that you're going to, that are going to be partners. And so to really understand how that relationship is going to go and manage that appropriately you have to output a risk stock from that and then there's a business decision that goes well if we're going to bring these suppliers on we have to either accept the risks or put in the right mitigations uh, that are going to then sometimes maybe within the contract that then enacts and executes those actions during the life so what you're talking about is what I suppose more more people would recognise it commonly as due diligence, right? Which is just exactly. a, a, a very widely used term, I suppose, which is that initial risk cre- creation, right? I suppose I think people look at due diligence in terms of do due diligence. If they fail spectacularly, we don't do business with them. But there is the greyer area that is we're still going to do business with them. But there's these things that came out that were a little bit Com- completely <laughs> and then those things that are meh, 
can just easily be stay on the most often stay on the shelf. Yeah. And and never get looked at again until you know the worst thing happens and one of those risks is realised and then then it's a, a real problem and that could have been avoided right from the get go by actually managing the risk. <laughs> and I, I think that's all good and well and it, as an upfront exercise, but there's still that second order problem where risk appears at any point in that life cycle yeah. of the relationship. So you, the ability to capture that risk and put it into that existing risk stock is going to be flowing, ebbing and flowing all the time. Yeah. And I think that's uh, another aspect that's I see overlooked quite often. So we see, um, and maybe over to you, Jesse, for this, we see regulations coming out now that they never tell you how to do stuff. They tell you kind of at a macro level what they suggest you cover, the guidance, right, which is you should do a robust risk assessment process at the beginning and then very quickly after that and periodically reassess and you can define the period in what that means, which I think is what you're referring yeah. to, Tony, right? It's not ever static. It always changes. What do you, when you talk to customers on a daily basis, weekly basis what, what's top of mind from at the moment that's in a risk context do you think of, of where where are people at and and is, is that right for your perspective or or what do you think they should be thinking of what i love doing what i do because the people i get to talk to are really concerned with uh, uh and this really means something to them is, is value value realization they want to fulfill their strategic purpose which is accelerate the roadmap of this business that's what procurement exists for at all right that is their strategic purpose so so i get to talk to a lot of people that know this and what and to answer your question directly what they say on this topic of risk is tired of the silos tired of tired of living with a tprm team way over there with their big grc construct and framework thinking about risks to the business. And then here's me way over here, shuffling through contracts, making sense of obligations, interfacing with suppliers, and in the moment, encountering problems, challenges with delivery of this or that or this or the other obligation in this contract. It's a risk if it doesn't happen because we're counting on it, which is why we have a contract. And th there's all kinds of activity in my life as a supply chain manager, vendor manager, contract manager, that I, because of our silos, I, I have to make myself familiar with this risk management policy posted and you know, <laughs> sometimes all but forgotten, sometimes sometimes that's an overstatement, but on some SharePoint somewhere. And I have to think about all my relationships and all my contracts and the obligations in them and the things I'm measuring and the controls against some of them if it's if it's understood as a risk. And I have to go inform that silo about it and then they can have their more informed list of all these risks. And it's just a drag. I, it's extra work I have to go do. There's certainly no help I get from that silo coming my way, except maybe for that, as Tony said, that one-time survey on the way in. And even that's not so much about the contract. There's very little of it that is insurance levels in the contract they must maintain, okay, things like that. But 
the real reason they're here to deliver something that's in the contract, our obligations and, and theirs, they're where I can really help the business, the people that, that make up our market talk, say is, is in the moments of, for the ones that I manage directly and that are my remit directly, I need a way to capture and drive through a lightweight risk management process. And I need the supplier to help me in reporting on this for a while and make sure we're controlling and have the right key KCIs, key control indicators coming back in. That's my problem number one. And problem number two, back to my silo problem, back to that vendor tail, who's going to help me? Aside from that one survey probably done on the way in, who's going to help me get across all these suppliers in their thousands, many thousands maybe, that I just don't have time. I could cock up some survey and send it to them and then that'll start getting stale. And I have to make time to consume the results. And anyways, in this kind of risk management stuff that I should be getting help with. So, so what we here is break down my silos, okay? P somehow, please, I can't reorganize the company around this, but break down my silos so that I have a way to easily capture risk and feed them. They have a ways to, to mitigate control risks that help me and that I have in my lap when I need to engage and give me some digital advantages to get across the ones, the 95% of our vendor base that no one has time to talk to. And, and, and then do something like back to the do, I might get informed, help me get informed, but then help me do in automated fashion so that I know I'm helping mitigate the risk to the business that's latent throughout that supply chain, right? And I can't do it today because of the silos and the, the typical structure we always see with the risk experts way over there, the supply chain experts way over here and silos. Right. That's a well-articulated reality of what I've seen of some large uh, leading just standard risk platforms that are in big organisations. You go and look at them from what they've got around different areas of risk and there's very light. It's not realistic as to what's in there because you've got the what I call sort of knowledge dissemination, which you've got the, the knowledge and the SMEs at risk sit further back in the business and the business operations line are the ones dealing and fighting the fires on a day-to-day -day basis. And unless that business operations line remembers whilst their hair's on fire that they have to go and get or to the other risk system, it just never manifests itself there. And to, to Tony's earlier point around due diligence, imagine you've done due diligence in like 2016 or 2017 on a really big deal and now what, you're year three or four in and it, all it says is about Brexit. Imagine how different the reality is in terms of the risk profile you've got and the risk stock you've got from that deal with the pandemic, the unrest that's happened, and everything else that's between happened between now and then, you'd be reading it going, that's out of date. That no. doesn't apply, right? So I think that compounds the point that there's that need to continually curate those risks and mitigate on a day-to-day -day basis. And back to the point where we started this, I think, which is you've got to remain flexible in the way that you do business and conduct this with the help of digital tooling. That it's not always about the same subject. We're talking about sustainability today or the Ukraine stuff, etc. It'll be something else tomorrow, but you need the flexibility of how to deal with that something else when it comes. I mean, you need it at your fingertips, don't you? I would want to be able to say, oh, I've just taken a policy directive to make sure that diversity, equity, and inclusion exists in my supplier base because if it doesn't, we're not going to win the business we need to win, mm -hmm. and that's who we want to be anyway. 
So I need to assess. I need to gather facts. If, if the facts aren't, aren't on the right side of the line, I need a risk made right then. I'd like to flag that the next time we get into this contract, we see if we can negotiate a new obligation. Yep. I'd like to then track the performance to, to see what kind of diversity numbers they're posting up every month and if it's getting better. And look, right there, we just hit diverse, you know, diversity and inclusion, mm. contract management, risk management, and performance management in two sentences. Do I have to swim around in seven systems and call six people to accomplish that? If I do, I'm probably just going to move on. Yeah, and the, the, the system know, should talk exactly. to each other, right? The system should do that work for right. you. I think this, this problem... Moment's lost if yeah. it's too hard. And that's, that is really where the market... About 20 years ago, it must have been the market. Must have been 20, maybe 15, 20 years ago. I, I apply the same kind of logic to, I can't remember who it was now, what company I was working for, but someone kind of said to me, it was about, you know, the time sort of personnel became HR and HR became people and that kind of that evolution. And it was about the HR saying that everyone needs to be a good line manager. Everyone needs to manage people. Everyone needs to be a people person. So we'll give you the tooling, appraisal systems to do that, and we'll give you a framework to measure them against. But you, you, you must manage the people. It's not, it's not all personnel then, or HR's job to manage the people. We help set out the framework. And I think risk management and cyber is exactly the same kind of thing. You will always have your SMEs that are further back. But you can't just by default engage the SMEs because that's a scale issue, right? And that's a you're just going to block each other out. It's going to be so hard, so difficult to engage. To your point, you're just not going to bother, right? So you have to disseminate some of that into the front line for them to be able to do it themselves. So that's back to the we've gone full circle. Back to the framework point of what you're going to manage against and how you're going to do it and how you're going to capture it. And the easier you can make that for the person who's day to day in business ops, whose hair's on fire, looking at these topics the more chance you've got of succeeding and the less chance you've got of a risk crystallising that, well, actually, an issue becoming a problem that actually is a, a risk that already crystallised that you never knew about, right, that you couldn't manage or mitigate. Gentlemen, that's our first episode of The Bridge Podcast. Thank you if you're watching or, or listening to this. If you want to talk to me or Jesse or Tony, you can do that in the comments. And please like, subscribe, share, respond with any emoticon that you choose to as is the norm today and hopefully we'll speak to you again soon thank you